0: This is another episode of On The Grid by Z-Prime. Love your energy.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Z-Prime On The Grid. I'm Dylan Lockwood. Joining me is my co-host, Joyce Dooley. Joyce, how are you doing today?
0: Doing fantastic, Dylan. Thank you. How are you?
1: I'm doing pretty good because we're uh, doing something we haven't done in a while, and we're talking about electric vehicles, and we're talking to someone uh, we haven't talked to in a long while. Uh, We've got back on the show today, Manager uh, for Electric Vehicles and Emerging Technology at Austin Energy, Carl Popham. Carl, welcome back.
2: How are you doing? Oh, it's good to be back, a fan of the show. Uh, I think I was on episode one when y'all needed a guinea pig. Yes. (laughs) Circled back. We have so much to talk about today. It is really exciting. So I'm glad to get a chance to circle back with the Z crew here and chat about what's going on in the EV scene. Right. and if
1: uh if Z crew takes off we'll we'll, uh, we'll make sure you get royalties for that um, thank you thank you one cent for every time it's mentioned <laughs> yeah that's that's oh. Carl that Carl owns that hashtag now
2: uh, uh, I've already, I've already uh, trademarked uh, Z crew a bit in reference to you guys as a third party observer on uh social media so I, i'm I'm doubling down on the z
0: <laughs> thanks so for doing the sure. good work for
2: off. us. <laughs> I feel pretty good about it. Worked with the Z crew for years now. And I, yeah, I, I just feel like it encapsulates uh, the brand a bit. But you know what? You can have it for free. How's that? It. Awesome. We appreciate
1: that. Um, so just to catch up, as it were, how have Austin Energy's uh, electric vehicle programs been um, evolving over the past uh, year or so since we last talked?
2: Well, I'd say surprisingly gangbusters, and the reason why I say surprisingly, is there's this something called a pandemic that hit. I don't know if you heard about it, so I don't know if we need to. Yeah, we've talked about it once or twice. About what COVID-19 is or pandemic, but that happened. Um, so one is we saw we launched some some new programs or expansions. Uh, For example, our DC FAST rollout, uh, all that construction of DC FAST stations all about Austin, so 30 30 new DC FAST stations to go on top of about the 1100 or so Level 2, that all happened right in the middle of the pandemic, that construction uh, was complete. So now we've kind of rounded out the the EV uh, charging station infrastructure to have a a pretty good representation and growing of DC FAST another major thing that happened over this year is the acceleration of our local transit authority cap metro going all electric so they made a public claim that they're never going to buy a fossil fuel bus again and so one of the things we did is we helped them design an electric bus depot that can support over 200 electric buses you know phased over time up in North Austin and that got you know had a little very many social distance ribbon cutting associated with it but it's open and there are 12 buses and and rapidly growing on that front so that's very cool and I would say the thing that I'm, I'm kind of most excited about and you know if I get to you know promote anything today I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend everyone check out the new Austin community EV Buyer's Guide. So that's ev.austenergy.com. So that got a major update and expansion to be a one-stop shop for Austinites to go and see, learn all about EVs, what models are out there, what incentives, what rebate, what are the local incentives, what are the state incentives? There are some, what are the federal incentives? And then what are the dealerships doing? and now it's real-time inventory. So you can shop both new and used. So I just went on yesterday, there are used EVs under 7,000 on that marketplace today that you can pick up. Um, There's also a lot of new stuff. You can look at all the new EVs and come into market and you can go and see what color, what trim features are in that lot. So when you go there, you're armed with that information and the pricing information to hopefully have a much more enjoyable Customer experience and buying an EVs, uh, as opposed to just uh, you know some of the traditional feedback we're getting uh, was a little little hit or miss to put it uh, lightly on going into traditional dealerships to chat about you know an EV they may or may not have on on the lot to test drive.
0: So, Carl, we've talked previously about two key barriers to increased EV adoption: um, price and variety. Have those shifted in 2020
2: and 2021? I'd say price. Uh, is moving very quickly in the right direction and kind of hinted at earlier on the buyer's guide. It was very important to include the now vibrant used EV market. People are getting into under 7,000, under 8,000, uh, low mileage, great deals, low total cost of ownership, no oil changes, you know, all the great things you expect in an EV and that very low use sticker price. So I'd say price, we're seeing a lot more variety because we're starting to see a vibrant used market um at least on price varieties we're on the cusp we're on the edge we as an industry are still primarily com- competing on this sedan or this sedan or this sedan and maybe a sedan slightly jacked up when we call it a crossover but so i, I did pull some numbers so looking at january's numbers um The sedan market only represented about 25% of the total US market in sales in January. So we're competing, we being the EV industry, a slice of a slice. So until we have variety that includes ready to go and availability of trucks and SUVs, I'm going to say we don't have variety. Until we get out of the sedan only play, the industry doesn't have variety. Um, now, I think, once again, we're on the cusp of having some real variety and some very interesting models. You're also seeing Tesla posting very good numbers. So I pulled their numbers from January last year, January this year. They had a 20% increase in sales. Uh, you know, Tesla knows how to sell cars. Um, and, and even here in Austin, we're seeing the Y, which is a crossover, um, doing very well. Uh, in, in the market, at least in the Austin market, which have access to those numbers as well. Um, so uh, price, yes. Variety, I'm still calling no on that. But I hope to have my view changed within about 12 to 14 months based on some release of some new stuff.
1: Yeah, there's... Uh, I will say just in terms of what's been like announced by manufacturers, there's definitely, yeah, different... Different kinds of uh, different kinds of things you, you hear about, like actual electric uh, pickups, um, or uh, you know SUVs, crossovers, as you said, that, that kind of thing. So I, I, I'm interested in uh, seeing where that goes, and also, uh, not just where it goes, but how much of it ma- actually makes it to the U.S. Um, as
2: opposed to the international markets. Uh, so but the good news on that front. Typically trucks and SUVs will make the US market because that is where we still dominate as a market, trucks and SUVs. Sedans, it's hit or miss. Is it gonna come to the US or just be in this part of the world that's doing bigger and better? But the good news is, and that's one of the reasons why when you look at EVs, it's a global market. You look at global market, it's still about sedans and efficient vehicles. We look at what's going on in Europe or China. There is, I mean, I used to live in London. There wasn't a lot of trucks, just people don't just drive in trucks and big, they're all in these sedans and little sedans. It's a much bigger market there. So in some ways, that's one of the reasons I think we're seeing a little bit of laggard in the truck and SUV, because it's such a big uh, component of the US market, not necessarily a lot of the other uh, adoption areas, like Norway doesn't drive a lot of trucks. Uh, but also there are some technical issues. I'm just. Just a difference in trucks and SUVs versus sedans, I think, might have made it a little slower roll. So, uh, I guess
1: what what are some of the things that are still in the still in the way? Because we talked about, you know, what what's changed for the better. What's sort of still in the way of uh, the, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, mainstream mainstream adoption from uh, from a consumer perspective.
2: Well, uh, you know, I don't mean to harp on trucks and SUVs, but we have to reiterate that point. That's the majority of the U.S. market right now. Um, and I think what we've seen is some of the big traditional manufacturers—I'm going to call sleeping giants. I think the sleeping giants have woken and are getting ready to help provide desirable products and smart marketing, how to market those products and bring that know-how to the market and really take off. With that said, if you look at traditional hype cycles and adoption, 3% is a number that's thrown around as time when you can really start seeing that hockey stick of adoption. So here in Austin, uh, we're at uh, month over month, three and a half percent of new EV sales or registrations are EVs. So we're just hitting that sweet spot so we could see an acceleration. You combine that, with some of these sleeping giants and what they're doing uh so you know gm is you know their claim is an all-electric future with a commitment of 30 new global electric vehicles by 2025 that's not far away so you have seen the hummer and some other things like that it's kind of in, kind of interesting ford's announcement of 29 billion dollars to compete in this market and potentially the biggest game changer arguably ever in the modern EV movement is the electric Ford F-150 Lightning. I don't think we can underestimate what Ford is bringing to the table. And then not only what they're bringing to the table of having a truck, but the number one consumer vehicle sold in the US is the Ford F-150, no one else beats it. So it is the, and so they're using the same branding, they're using that know-how, And I think they very smartly are presenting this as a desirable vehicle that fundamentally caters to consumers and what they want in a vehicle, not trying to create a vehicle and how we're going to change the consumer to fit to this new product. When you were talking about marketing,
1: um, we'll, you know, we'll sort of get into the, the, uh, EV industry and lifestyle as a whole, but, uh, what about Austin Energy specifically? Uh, are you doing things to promote EVs among your customer base, like to, to encourage to encouraging people to buy them? Or are you doing a bit more hands off and just making resources available to uh,
2: people who do make that choice? Now, we're very proactive and engaged with our community in marketing and outreach of EVs. When utilities come to us, so our utility is very mature now. We're getting ready to have our 10 year anniversary. So, so fun fact: so I, I had the the opportunity to co-found and lead this team now for 10 years, and I get a lot of utilities just now coming into with developing EV programs um, in this space. And I give the same advice, pretty universally, where to start. Always start with marketing and outreach. Have some strategic vision. Start setting yourself in the community as being a leader. Uh, one, is it's gonna help you kind of accelerate the adoption and there's a lot of upsides for utilities. Uh, two is there's a lot of policy decisions being made about your industry and your future programs. And if you're not seen as a thought leader in the space, you know, the old adage is you're either at the table or on the table. I think utilities who are thinking this isn't happening or being passive aggressive or other ways of just really slow rolling, they're going to be on the table and other people are going to make decisions about your models, what you can and can't do, how you can price things, who can do what, when, and where, because other people with other interests are going to make the decisions for you. So always start with marketing outreach. So to answer the question, what we're doing is, Yes. So one is go to Austin.com. That is our team's just kind of program website. You can see a lot of cool stuff there. Uh, one, we have a very uh, popular mascot here in Austin. Uh, it is a member of my team, Stevie, the EV loving T Rex. Uh, Stevie's views on uh, social media has thirty second to sixty second clips to kind of myth bust, and they're just kind of fun. They now have over a million views. And just as interesting is over 92% of the participants who stumble across one of these Stevie videos, watch it to completion. So 92% completion rate, well over a million views and growing. Um, so we really think we're getting the word out there. And then with the buyer's guide, ev.austrange.com, that's really the call to action. So you have the things like Stevie and, and other kind of cutesy things, but they, they do have important messages behind it. Um, we're also interested or have started, uh, we're even thinking about, you know, how can this be a national campaign? So the city of Indianapolis just recently launched their own EV loving T-Rex, uh, Stevie made a few cameos to, to help with the launch. And I would love to see other cities doing this. And then we all celebrate in about three years, we bring all the, the different, uh, EV loving T-Rex and Austin, uh, have a 5k run. And a celebration, and uh, and then we reflect on that because, um, you know, I think there's a lot utilities can do. There's a lot, and at the end of the day, how my team has always kind of operated, we've operated more like a startup uh, culture embedded in a larger utility framework. And the very first thing successful startups do is they look at market share. How can we get as much market? So our market share is, how can we accelerate adoption of EVs? There's also a very clear financial backend for utilities because these cars plug in. So on average, every EV that comes into our territory, we know is worth about $385 of new EV revenue per year. So if you start looking at potential scenario planning or projections in Austin, uh, you know as early as 2030, we're talking over $280 of new revenue um, for, util- for, for a utility like Austin Energy. This isn't just utilities and type. This is Austin Energy as a city-owned utility could capture over $200 million in new revenue by 2030 on just consumer EV adoption alone, I'm not even talking about public transit, short haul, or long haul.
0: Um, so you kind of mentioned some of the things that utilities should be doing from getting started and how they should uh, build that thought leadership piece. But what are some of the ways that you've seen um, how utilities have started thinking differently about EVs or how they're changing to keep up?
2: The number one thing of experience. And so, you know, I mentioned earlier this perspective of someone who's been leading an EV program out of utility for 10 years, 10 years ago it was this isn't happening why is austin energy investing in this seven years ago it was well maybe it will happen yeah what's the risk versus reward how can we invest now the discussion now is no longer about if it's about when and how quickly what are we going to do about it uh ev programs and electrification are now front of the docket of conferences, of content. There's a lot of interest, because the genie's out of the bottle, and whether utilities it or not, this is happening. And I think like any opportunity, there's also risk. So how do you maximize the opportunities for utilities? So that can be everything from revenue growth, climate goals, grid modernization, resiliency, and then how can you mitigate the potential risks the risks potentially to your grid if not planned properly etc um so that's kind of the number one change i've just felt by doing this for quite a few years and i would also say utilities who when they start doing a deeper dive are getting away from well this is load growth evs is just load growth which load growth is a disservice to what evs are for utilities load growth to me it assumes you're growing more of the same and that's as the but the load profile is completely different more of the same means more buildings and air conditioning that's more of the same evs one is they do a lot more charging at night it's not all about summer air conditioning peaks that's what traditional at least here in texas being a sunbelt utility build our whole grid around so you're able to leverage existing infrastructure that's not competing on your peak. So you're not able you're not having to build as much infrastructure as if you're doing low growth, you're leveraging existing capital investments in your infrastructure because not only does the twenty four hour cycle look different, the seasonal, it's not seasonally adjusted. So whether it's a hot day, a cool day, a cold day, people are generally driving their cars the same. So it's much more predictable load once again uh, flattening the the peaks if you will of your existing infrastructure i would say the last thing any utility who is serious about energy storage could be used you know the two major use cases energy storage is increased renewable energy on the grid increase renewable energies or a resiliency play when you look at the forecasts 80% 80% of all batteries moving forward are going to have wheels attached to it. So as utility, you're doing yourself a disservice if you think you have a storage strategy or renewable energy penetration strategy or resiliency strategy and aren't considering the new ubiquitous storage you're going to have on your grid, which is EVs, uh, you're really not thinking about where the market's going. To put it in perspective, a new EV now, you know, on average, around 70, 75, 80 kilowatt hours is what uh, EV can have on it. A Tesla Powerwall latest generation rates at 13. So you're already getting something much bigger parked in that garage than what's continued considered a home energy storage system, and it's a sunk cost. The battery has already been sunk cost into it. So there, there's a lot more opportunities whether it's uh, vehicle-to-home, vehicle-to-grid, demand response, all those type of things. We have pilots in all those um, as ways for utilities to kind of shape the future and take, and once again, maximize opportunities, minimize the risks in these EVs coming into your career.
1: Can I ask just a quick follow-up about the about the demand response thing, just because that's something I've been hearing about uh, through through the grapevine. Like, is because that's that's something that was used to be like an idea, but now I think it's being, you have a pilot's being put in practice. Is there a model for that yet, or uh, what, what's being
2: tried right now in, in on that end? So demand response. So several years ago, you know, pretty early in the market, we were part of an ARPA-E grant to do demand response for EV charging arpa is the more innovative side of U.S. Department of Energy Grants. It's, so it's generally the kind of stuff a little farther out there than some of the traditional Department of Energy Grants. And here's what we learned. So one, we learned the open standards, even back then, were fully, fully worked to support what we wanted to do. Open ADR was the standard we use and continues to be existing today. So the standards were there. The technical capabilities, definitely there. The main thing we learned is the customer experience. So when we did our pilot in Austin for demand response on EV charging, we also did our traditional demand response customers, air-conditioned thermostats. So anytime a utility does a DR response event, customers have the option to opt out. So they could opt out of EV charging or opt out of air conditioning. That's just how demand response works. What we found is we got the expected number of opt-outs for when we start touching people's thermostats. There's definitely a segment of the population. They're one degree warm. They will mm, opt out. They will just click on it. They don't care what's going on in the market or whatnot. Uh, During our pilot, we had 0.0 opt-outs of the EV shifting the EV charging load so what we're finding is people as long as the car is ready in the morning there is a lot more willingness and less opt-outs to shift that load and it kind of makes sense too you know anecdotally it makes sense but mathematically it makes sense the other related pilots we have going on right now we do have an ev 360 program Uh, there's a waiting list right now it's fully subscribed as a pilot But that is basically a time of use. It's a home of a way, all you can charge publicly and at home, as long as you're off peak, flat rate $30. That's your new home and away bill. If you charge during peak, we charge you a very punitive 41 cents a kilowatt hour. And here's what we found about that. Out of the 100 participants right now, it works 100% of the time for 99% of the pilot participants. Well, there's just one guy, just doesn't care. I need to sit down and have focus group with that one guy and, and figure that out. Um, but so, but we have seen that's another way to shape that load that people are willing to ninety nine percent of the time uh, agree with you. You can you can definitely do it. And the last thing is we do have a vehicle to grid demonstration as part of the Austin Shines project. That was part of an aggregated load of um, residential uh, fixed stationary storage systems. And the lesson learned there is technically it, very, it works very well, it's very responsive, but we think the commercial products of that uh, bi-directional flow, that 10-gate type system is too expensive and a little too clunky for consumer use at this time. So we're getting there, and technically it performed well, it just was too expensive, the, the, the cost of that particular unit was the same cost of the Nissan LEAF we bought. So, you know, that ain't good. (laughs) But we're already seeing much more affordable units in Japan uh, and other places. It's just a matter of being commercially commercially available, UL listed, all the things we look for here in the US market.
0: So you touched on some of this a little bit, but do you mind kind of explaining a little bit more um, on how perceptions of EVs have changed from a customer standpoint? Because it sounds like there's been some pretty significant shifts.
2: Yeah, I would say what I've seen is a shift of electric cars being cheap and slow and toys to being high performance and desirable, uh, super quick. So kudos to Tesla and shout out where they really knew how to make a brand. There's a reason why the Tesla models spell out sexy, with the three being the the equivalent of the E, because they had an IP conflict on using the E as a Tesla E as a competitor with, with, I believe, Mercedes didn't like that. But so there's a reason why it's it spells out sexy. They know how to make a desirable brand. And when Tesla even gets into forays of other things, that branding has a lot of cachet to it. And so so I'd say that's a number one change. And a lot of that credit, uh, frankly, goes to Tesla to be able to do it. And I think more people, as you're starting to get to that 3% adoption, are now no longer just hearing about cars anecdotally or maybe a Super Bowl ad. But they now have a neighbor who has one or a coworker. And that's a trusted advisor. Once a neighborhood, so what you do see with EV adoption, it does happen in clusters. So whether clusters is home, one person gets one and we still see a few more coming because they also in their neighbor likes talking about it. We also the same thing in workplace charging. When we started offering workplace charging, you'd get one. And all of a sudden the, the Cubemate next to them would get one, too, because they'd hear it from the person next to them. You start seeing these clustering of the ownership because someone they personally know has one and and shows on the ropes with it and really starts bragging about it. So I'd say that's kind of the that's being the big thing change is just the the heightened sense of desirability uh and also the approachability of evs for a lot of people because they now know people who have
1: them i'm kind of interested in uh what you were you were talking about about how you know tesla came out of the gate with that with, with putting their you know their brand of ev out there in a certain way and because tesla was basically synonymous with EV because they were the only company that was like that was flooding the U.S. market with EVs for a period of time. I think that uh, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like that brand sort of um, overwrote maybe not overwrote, but that brand sort of defined what what owning an EV is, which is that it's owning it is kind of like a luxury item, an interesting piece of tech that has gull-wing doors and can shift lanes automatically, um, and, be, and you know beep at you if you're not doing if you're not if you're not uh driving well and that and that sort of thing. So I I'm I'm curious if th- even as prices for other kinds of EVs are, are going down and, and, and even some Teslas, uh if that sort of idea of EVs as a luxury item, if that's something that's changing among the consumer populace due to the factors you were talking about.
2: Yeah, so we we do have an equity inclusion over three years running called EVs for everyone to really try to expand the demographic and sense of inclusion um, so hence why it's important to us to include used mark used card deals on the Austin Community uh, Buyer's Guide Um, so you're starting to see people figure that out and the reliability is so good, and not the oil changes. Um, you know, less of these big, you know, transmission repair bills. All the kind of things that can really be a struggle for folks. Uh, transportation is a typical household's number two expense. For low-income folks, it's over thirty percent of their income goes to transportation. Normal middle-class around twenty percent. Typically, the only expense higher is your housing cost. And so if utilities are really wanting to make a difference in affordability and checkbooks, getting into the transportation business and having affordable, reliable, sustainable fueling choice as a customer choice, that's mathematically could be the biggest impact you can do even more than anything you do with the utility bill cuz just cuz the percentage people spend on transportation is just so much higher than comparing to utility bill. So if you want to make the biggest impact, get into the transportation segment of and bring what you do best into that into that segment. I would say, you know, looking at the the lifestyle or or changes is I think we're starting to see very smart branding and marketing. If you go to the F-150, the actual Ford re- press release of their new F-150 Lightning, I don't think they even say the word climate in three pages of press release, four pages. It might be buried in there somewhere, but I didn't see it. They The very first thing they talk about is how many horsepower this thing has, 563, pulled it and more than torque than any F-150 ever made. So they instantly come out, they know what's the power of this thing. Also standard four by four. Oh, people like that. Then they talk about payload, 2,000 pound payload, 10,000 pound towing, all the specs that check off a lot of boxes, why people wanna buy trucks. And then they start doing what I'm gonna call ticklers. Here's some of the new stuff. Oh, by the way, this this has the ability to be self-driving on approved highways. So, if you're commuting down highways or whatnot, as part of this self driving tech from Ford, hands free, you can kind of relax, drink your coffee while your Ford truck is driving. That is new. And that's what's being offered in the Lightning. Even in their base model, what they call the Pro, still has that technology in it. And then they start talking about generator. Your truck has serious power. You can power, you can seriously power a home from that truck. It's 9.6 kW. That is a lot of juice. You can power. A job site or a home, a typical home's load, I mean, with the air conditioning on, you're running air conditioning and everything, you know, might be 7KW, 6KW. So the fact it's coming in at 9KW is kind of redonkulous. Um, and then they talked about the range, the 300 mile range. And what I think is the design, they didn't go wonky. It looks like there's a reason why when the CEO tweeted about how many they got over 40,000 early buy requests, first 24 hours in his image he pictured a truck A traditional combustion engine vehicle was half the picture and the other half was the um lightning only well, difference is the headlight it looks a little cooler on the lightning but just showing the fact is it's this, it's the f-150 you know and love and it has all these features and by the way pricing starts under forty thousand dollars even before these federal incentives um so I compare that to the early ads that I saw from Nissan Leaf really focused on, hey, save the environment, by a Leaf. And it, and it had a, a, a pregnant mother who turned into a globe, you know, it was all night. But that, that's not the audience you're really reaching to do mass adoption. You had Volt do a commercial about a guy needing to use a, the bathroom at a gas station, and he was in distress, but at least he didn't need to get gas. And then you had BMW, iconic brand, i3, they had an ad campaign around getting a speeding ticket from a, from a police officer, at least I saved money on gas. Terrible, terrible, terrible. And so I think we finally are starting to see some smart, It's that's just as important in, in some ways as the product, is how you market it and how you present it. And I think, a really good case study on Ford of, of what they're doing right now and how they're reaching a new new demographic. Yeah, so it's not just
1: like uh, it's not this is a status symbol. It's this is a this is a car and it's better than your current car. So why not upgrade to this? I, that's a that's a smart way of going about it.
2: Yeah, it's like it's a work truck, and they did a very good job of explaining how this fits into what you want. That we have this product and you need to change and this is how it's going to work for you and even we as utility people are trying to do a better job figuring out for example the number one search term that drives people to ev.austenergy.com isn't electric vehicle isn't ev isn't the u- words we use it's electric car that's what consumers call it they call it an electric car so even in this podcast we said nothing about vehicle 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 That's an industry term. So we even are reflecting our programs to say electric car, here's this electric car, because that's what they call it. And stop trying to get them to learn your language versus vice versa. And so I think that's a very specific example of what Ford's doing. They know what their their customer language is, a work truck, what that means. And there is a reason why successful people sell cars. Not a single one will tell you I sell a car. They sell a lifestyle. If everyone just bought the cheapest thing available, we'd all be driving, I don't know, $9,000 smart cars. There wouldn't to be room for Mercedes or Lexus or whatever. But everyone has this sense of association with cars and emotional response to buying. And even in our early focus groups when we launched our first campaigns, far and away the number of reasons people buying cars is kind of the fun and cool aspect, the lifestyle. Number two, which was a big step, was Affordability, can I afford it? People kind of figure out or company, well, you can lease it so that it's cheaper per month or whatnot. You know, they figure out how to get you in that car. And then, third and a distant last was, I want to do good for the planet. I'm buying the car. I want to take this medicine in this one car. If people were really involved in that, that came assumed and became part of the lifestyle reason they bought it because they wanted to reflect them as tone friends and they could say, oh, I have this EV and that was part of their lifestyle, but they weren't buying it necessarily. Is this is gonna fix something. They were buying it because it represented more of how I associate with what my lifestyle is and this car incorporates my lifestyle. And I think that's important and it's important for you because a lot of utilities really focus on the commoditized monetization of what they do. Uh, and I think there's a lot more value that you can give to customers than just the commodity of a KWH there's a lot more value in innovation, new programs, how you think about things, how you help their lives be better, even beyond the traditional KWH commodity purchase that consumers do day in and day out.
0: Most definitely, I mean, that's part of doing a customer centric shift, right? Um, it's getting out of our own way in order to better <laughs> serve other people.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good point. So when I first joined Austin Energy 16 years ago, we didn't even use the word customer. Someone in a meeting was talking about, well, how does this impact the rate payer? I'm like, what's a rate payer? Well, I think y'all call you them customer. Why don't we say customer? No, they're rate payers. We used to not even say the word not that long ago, customers, rate payers. Then we evolved into customers, and then we started doing customer satisfaction and JD Power scores and whatnot. Now we evolved into customer experience. What's the customer experience? So I, I've just seen it in my own ecosystem in time us moving and thinking very differently than ratepayer to customer experience. That is uh, an evolution, if not a revolution in thought process on who you're working with, who you're, who you're providing a service to.
0: Well, now we got prosumer coming, so it's going to be a very interesting shift.
2: Prosumer, yeah, and I think, you know, that we're truly just kind of that informed consumer or consumer doing things. That you know, with distributed energy resource generation and other type technologies, these are all happening once again, whether utilities like it or not. People can self-inform and self-select. And so it's really about utilities embracing that and being smart about it, frankly, and what their strategy is. Uh, but yeah, that's an excellent, excellent point. So people are more informed and they definitely have a lot more access to information, but not. And their expectations are much higher. They want to do just about everything from a phone. If you don't have a strategy around how you can do everything with utility the phone or strategy on how millennials and people younger than millennials think about when interacting with companies, in my opinion, you're already way behind the times of where you need to be to be successful moving forward.
0: Mm, most definitely. Um, So as some of that, right, so electric cars are part of the national conversation right now, especially around combating climate change. Um, But what do you hope policymakers consider as they pay more attention to this space and the needs of the drivers and the power providers?
2: Uh, You know, regarding policy, I do talk a lot to a lot of different policymakers, both local, state and federal i adds some of a few thoughts here. One, incentives do work, those rebates and those programs, and those are much better at federal or even in Texas state-type budgets, just to help defray, because um, consumers, even though the total cost of ownership is much lower, they look at sticker price. So as you can massage that, fleet managers look at total cost of ownership with different type of program, but consumers really focus on that first. Uh, you know, and the Biden plan mentioned about 500,000 new stations. Um, here'd be my advice there one is, I really think we need to discourage, you know, as any kind of incentive program, subsidy, the 500,000, etc., is network infrastructure that only caters to a segment of your EV population. The Tesla network only allows Tesla. now teslas can charge everywhere because they have adapters but only teslas now you made rivian who i think they have an awesome product announce oh we're going to do the same thing we're going to have the rivian network so shame on us if we strand a ford f-150 lightning or a gm or whatever and they're in front of a tesla hub or now a rivian hub and they can't plug in and they can't get home So I really think if we're giving out any subsidies or incentives with government money, I think it should be open and accessible to all as a baseline. So that would be a policy decision I would highly recommend. Uh, We also need to think about standards in DC Fast. You know, the level two standard pretty much, you know, everyone's doing J1772 great. But we kind of failed, the global bodies kind of failed having a global standard. So you know, once so we have uh here in most US manufacturers in Western Europe, the CCS is a standard. Asian manufacturers like Nissan Leaf, Chatamo. Uh then you have the Tesla with their own supercharger technic. Now you're gonna have Ravian with their own et cetera etc. Um I think once again kind of like the federal government did to standardize railroad widths of cars. They said if you want to transport troops you have to have this width of width of railroad to get our proper, proprietary railroad technology, and I think we're we're at the same way with infrastructure. It's not railroads; it's electric vehicle service infrastructure. We're at the same crossroads now. Let's set a standard that we're all going to support by having to have these different nozzles. So what we did in Austin Energy. So we wouldn't choose one or the other. We rolled out according to ChargePoint one of the first. Dual standard single port charging stations, DC fast charging stations in the US. You can see it on electric drive. And so if you have Chatmo, you plug out here. And if you had a CCS, you'd plug out here, et cetera. But it makes it um, you know, it makes it more complicated, it makes the technology more expensive, it makes it more clunky. So I think here in the US, CCS is our DC fast standard. It is the majority of the vehicles today and also kind of back some of the federal you know made in america plans because it supports the american manufacturers western european manufacturers etc so i think we should just call out a federal standard and i think the winner is going to have to be ccs on, on dc fat. um and lastly as far as policy um and maybe i'm going against the stream here i think california did an unintended consequence their policymakers by requiring all charging, EV charging, to be kilowatt hour required. Um, and I understand the argument. Well, a gallon of gas is this amount of energy, so we want to charge, up. So we put it here. But there's a couple of reasons why I don't like it and what the unintended consequences are of that. One is people are making these investments. One is my stance is let the market decide. Have an open competitive market. And people are smart enough to figure out, I like this per minute here. Or I like this all-inclusive program here. Austin Energy has an all-inclusive program. $4.17 a month. You can charge as much as you want on over 1,100 charging ports in Austin Level 2. That's all you can drink. It's not kilowatt hours. So that would not be compliant, quote, unquote, uh, or per minute. The reason why I like per minute, and why our DC fast network is a plug-in, plug-out per minute, is for two reasons. One is just to recoup the investment. Is the cost of that hundred thousand dollar per plug charging station isn't the pennies of kilowatt hours? So it's the depreciation of the asset, and a per minute is a time based. Uh, value stream. So it more associates with cost recovery and utilities are all about cost recovery. So it goes more aligned with the traditional utility business model of cost recovery. But two, and potentially more important, is I'm going to say customer experience. Um, our goal is to have as much availability at all times. If people are coming through a highway and needing to get on their way to make their trip, we don't want them to come across a big line of people waiting. Uh, or if they are a gig economy driver and they're driving gig economy drivers driving enough miles per day where they have to get that fast charge to just do their job for the rest of the day they need to fill up before maybe they do night pickups or whatever um the average stop of a when you have per minute what you're seeing at least on, on about 18 minutes if you have kilowatt hour your average stop will be about 45 to 50 minutes And let me tell you the number one reason why is every vehicle that I'm aware of at around 80% of the battery being filled, it turns your very expensive, your very fancy, super fast charger to a crawl to protect its own battery. So that's why we want people to get to 80% and move off so the other people can get 80% and move off. That 80 to 20% can be 10 times longer. To fill that part up, then that up to 80% at no fault of the charger, no fault of the infrastructure, but the car manufacturing software to protect its own battery. So it doesn't heat up that lithium ion batteries too fast. Um, so I, I so I think it's just a disservice of trying to say, well, let's regulate. This is let from a business standpoint, business models let a competitive road robust market. I think there's space for all you can drink. I think there's space for per minute charging. I think there's space for kilowatt hours. And let people kind of decide what makes the most sense for them.
1: Well thank you for that Carl and it's uh something to something to chew on.
2: Yes, chew away. Uh but there's a lot of talk about it. I also talked to uh this was an office of a of a of a US uh US congressman and one of the questions they asked was, the, "A lot of their stakeholders are talking about DC fast start should be as easy as driving into a gas station, as easy as, as making that a policy, as driving into a gas station. It should be easier. And yeah, my knee jerk reaction is that's terrible. I mean, one is once again, you're just placing how people do things in the past. So first and foremost, 80% of all charging happens at home so it's more like as easy as plugging in your cell phone that that would more resonate of how charging really happening public infrastructure only counts for about 15 20% of all charging it's right now so as easy as plugging to a cell phone is how easy it should be it's probably the preferred method but then with a gas station is is different we want uh ideally as e- as easy as getting charged from where you're going to be already so cars are either cars are parked 95% of the time they only use 5% of the time. One study had out the 5% it's actually rolling its wheels. 1% is looking for parking. So very inefficient. So where the car is going to be naturally parked anyway. Home or work are your two best players. So workplace charging is a fantastic place to put. So it's easy as just going to work. You just don't even think of you go to work and charge. And that's how easy it should be. Or it's some place you already want to be. What I'm going to call the 20-minute amenity. Coffee shop, those kind of things not too long you don't want a movie house not too short but a relaxing 20 minute experience um so yeah and then i just don't like associating uh, that just kind of limits the thinking i mean i get the point you're trying to put a correlation but i think it's a real disservice on how easy charging can be and how to imagine a sustainable and not tying yourself to your rope of gas station and that's how we have to feel about it
1: right? yeah
2: notion is I, terrible yeah. So
1: finding finding a yeah, finding a way to uh to work with like some of the some of the local businesses with the big parking lots to to do that. So I, like my like the like the mall in downtown Spokane has EV charging on the on the in the parking unit. So I I imagine, you know, finding ways to put those in like you know, like ballparks or like uh I guess those are the <laughs> malls and ballparks, and the two things I think. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm kind of telling on myself right here. <laughs> those are the, the places. Oh, yeah, you yeah, yeah. uh, do. Really?
2: Our new uh, Austin's first, I believe it's our first professional team. Our new soccer team. They do have uh, electric vehicle charging infrastructure up at that new stadium. Okay. Awesome. That we well, we'll still go hard. Sounders, but
1: that's still pretty cool. <laughs> um, all right. Well, well, Carl, thanks for uh, thanks for being back on the show. I lo- love talking about. Uh, evs um so it's it just good to good to hear how how you've been doing um
2: and how evs are doing yeah uh it's, business is booming if you're a utility person and wanting getting evs it's a very exciting time if you like constantly learning learning something new every day becoming completely irrelevant in six months because everything's changed this is the industry for you it's it's such a blessing to be in it and uh i think the future is extremely bright i am uh extremely optimistic of where we're going with evs i i you know what and not
1: to not to not to inject myself too much but i am too i i hope i've been hoping to to land one but i um am bad with money uh joyce Thanks for being. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, <laughs> how are you feeling about the future of EVs?
0: I am, triply excited. Right. I think that uh, it, there's just so much to happen on the so much happening on the horizon that um, it gives me a lot of hope, um, and it makes me also very uh, interested in securing one for myself at some point. Though I won't say I'm as bad at money as you are. Um.
2: <laughs> That's right. I own that. Check out ev.austernity.com. It's a great place to shop. I know y'all are all over the U.S., et cetera, but it's still, still has a lot of good information for anyone, frankly. I'll
0: have to do that. Thanks, Carl.
2: Yeah. That was a good and it
1: sneaky out. plug. Uh, and for my overt plug, uh, you can find our research and media at zprime.com. You can find us on social media at dylockwood, at jedulia, at zprime underscore research. My name is Dylan, and we'll see you all next time.